Before I start, do any of you have any questions? Yes. Someone please grab the mic. The definition. What is the definition? I'll repeat. Go ahead. What's the definition of right and wrong? What is the definition of right and wrong? Right and wrong because uh, the thing that I think is right for me from someone else's perspective, that might be wrong. So is it perspective dependent or what is the, how do I say that this is right versus this is wrong? Well, so how do we say what is right and what is wrong because it seems as though everyone has their own perspective well ultimately what is right is what is connecting us to the supreme personality of Godhead and following his instruction in the Bhagavad Gita Krishna says sarva dharman parityaja mame kam sharanam braja aham tung sarva pape bhyo shami masuchaha that uh, abandon all varieties of religion and just surrender unto me and when he says sarva dharman parityaja there are various dharmas that is there are ways that every person according to their situation in life may have particular duties to do for instance, in the Varnashrama system, there's Brahmas, Brahmanas, Kshatriyas, Vaishyas, and Shudras. Nobody likes a violent priest, and nobody appreciates a non-violent policeman. So a, a priest who is uh, violent is not appreciated. And, and it may be wrong for a, a Kshatriya to be non-violent, as it was for Arjuna, when he claimed, there's plenty of room up front too if you want to come closer. I don't bite. That Arjuna uh, was thinking that it would be right for him to become nonviolent. And Krishna said, no, it's not right for you because you're a Kshatriya. So there was this sense that uh, what is right for one person would be wrong for another. And for Arjuna, that was wrong. So from that perspective, there's, there's right for some people. To, what's right for one person may be wrong for another according to their particular station in life. However, the absolute right means that that is the absolute um, standard of rightness is that one's activities should ultimately come towards Krishna because even in the Varnashrama, if one performs one's right duty, but it's not connected to Krishna. Uh, this, as is mentioned in the 11th canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam, those who follow the Varnashrama, but without the intention of pleasing Krishna or surrendering to Krishna, are uselessly um, engaging. And therefore the Bhagavatam takes up where the Bhagavad Gita leaves off. At the end of the Bhagavad Gita, as I just quoted, Krishna says, abandon all, all varieties of religion, just surrender to me. That's the ultimate right thing to do. And in the beginning of the Srimad Bhagavatam, we hear <coughs> Dharma, uh, I'm sorry, Dharma Projita Kaitavotra Paramon Nirmatsaranam Satam. And that is, the Bhagavatam rejects all kinds of religious activities that are materially motivated. That means that if you're doing something so called right, but it isn't connected to surrender to Krishna or for the purpose of pleasing him, then that activity is wrong. And we find on the battlefield of Kukshetra when Krishna asked Yudhishthira to tell a lie because he wanted, Krishna wanted, that, that Ashvatama, or that, rather that uh, Arjuna's a guru, be, uh, be um, dissuaded from fighting and to become discouraged so that he would lose the fight. He wanted him to hear that uh, his son had died. So there was an elephant 
named Ashvatthama, who had died on the battlefield. And Krishna told Yudhishthira, you tell uh, Dronacharya that Ashvatthama has died, and then he'll give up the fight. He won't have the will to continue. But Yudhishthira hesitated, because he said, but I've never told a lie, that's wrong. But then he used the excuse, well, Ashvatthama, the elephant, is dead. But still he hesitated, because he thought the sense of following the Dharma, of telling the truth, was higher than following Krishna's instruction. And here you see the dichotomy. And therefore, uh, he was... Uh, not thought of well in that situation because of the fact that um, he didn't distinguish between the higher right of following Krishna and following the dharma of telling the truth. So in one sense, there is a, a right for each person according to their station of life, but the ultimate uh, purpose of everything is ultimately to please Krishna. And if that's attained by doing what's wrong in one's particular uh, varna or ashram or whatever situation one's in in life, if, it's, if one can definitively, definitively find that it pleases Krishna, then th that's the ultimate right. Does that help? Sure. Uh, just a follow-up question. If uh, we identify something is wrong, how do we fix it? I mean, uh, fix it, uh, how do we take that wrong? If, uh, the wrong is done by us or wrong is done by someone else. In both the cases, how do we uh, take it and resolve this? Well, it depends on the particular wrong you're talking about. But in general, for devotees, as, as the, the instruction is given in the Srimad Bhagavatam, Sapadamulam bhajata priyasya taktanya bhavasa hare priyasaha. Vikarma yachchot patitam katanchid tunoti sarmam hritisani vishta. And that is that if one does some vikarma, which means one does, as one's practicing devotional service, but one does something wrong, he deviates from the path, then the admonition is that one should continue sincerely with the process of devotional service because Krishna is within the heart and he understands your intention. And therefore, he'll rectify the situation if you continue serving. <coughs> if somebody else does wrong, we should forgive them. Because uh, um, they are also, if they are also properly situ situated on the path of devotional service, then they will be rectified. And if they're not, we should forgive them for our own sake, especially if there's a transgression against ourselves. Forgiving someone doesn't mean that we don't do due process to help correct them, but internally we should forgive them because holding a grudge against someone is like drinking poison and then hoping that the other person dies. <coughs> Loka Prabhu? Okay. Yeah. Do you have other questions? Yes? Sometimes, as many times, when something is not right in the institution or uh, wherever, Sometimes it affects our mind and our sense of right and wrong that propel us to stop associating or how do we protect from that uh, danger because ultimately we are, uh, I guess we all have a sense of right and wrong within us and we don't want to associate with something wrong but then our sense of right and wrong sometimes comes to harm us um, by isolating us. So how do we protect ourselves from that? Well, what we're protecting ourselves from is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Because there's always, an, there's always some wrong in the material world, Krishna says. In the Bhagavad Gita 18th chapter, Krishna says that wherever there's fire, there's smoke. Fire is necessary for Vedic sacrifice. It's also the most useful element that we use in human society. But still, there's smoke. So he gives this as an analogy to point out that in, in every activity that we do, even if we're doing it to do something right, there's going to be some fault. For instance, shudras, although they're following their dharma, they may have to follow a bad master, because shudra is supposed to serve. And what if you get a master that's not perfect? 
we still have to serve. And for a Vaisha, a Vaisha uh, to make a profit in business says, for you I make no profit. But that's not true. Otherwise, why is he doing business? Kshatriyas, they have to commit violence in order to do their duty. And that's not very nice. There's also a, a, a possible reaction for that. And uh, brahmanas, even times of yore, when they're performing sacrifices, they light fire, living entities are killed, even sometimes there's animal sacrifices. Of course, ostensibly it's meant for bringing back the life of the animal to test the mantras. But the Shastras point out that in every way there's some fault in the material world. Therefore, if we, we become discouraged because we see some fault somewhere, and then we give up the process of devotional service, then that's uh, to our detriment, because one way or another we have to find a way to keep serving, even <coughs> despite the fact that there's faultiness here, there, and everywhere. So sometimes you know, people would write Prabhupada and they say that I can't stand this person, I can't work with them and stuff, and then Prabhupada would say, try to work with somebody else. If, and the person turned out they couldn't work with somebody else. Prabhupada said, come work with me. Uh, he was accommodating and, and also wanted to discourage uh, devotees from, uh, from a sense of uh, utopia. He said that don't try to find utopia, even in a spiritual movement or even in the spiritual world, because we're all individuals and therefore we have our individual tastes and there may be even foibles. And even in the, uh, in the course of performing our devotional service, we may make mistakes. But don't um, become discouraged by that. It's the nature, not only the material world, but the spiritual world. And don't think that spiritual life means there's no problems and there's no faults in others. And if you can develop that understanding, then you can be more accommodating and learn to work around the mistakes and try to be part of the solution. There's a mentality that if it doesn't go well, like when kids are playing, sometimes they'll say, I take my bat and ball and go home. And to make ultimatums in the course of working with devotees that I didn't like the way the person treated me, therefore I'll take my bead bag and my uh, Achman cup and I'll go home. But uh, it, it's actually more purifying to stay in and continue doing one's service. As Krishna says in the Gita, renunciation in the mode of passion means to give up one's duty. And there, he said, you don't get any result from that. It's passionate. In the mode of goodness, you tolerate and you go on doing your duty one way or another. Again, I repeat, it doesn't mean you don't do due diligence if you find some fault. There are ways to deal with faults and discrepancies amongst devotees in the process, uh, which, which are nonviolent and which uh, you actually get what you want. For instance, in, uh, in communicating with others, if you're careful in the way you express what's bothering you about what the other person's doing wrong, then it's possible to actually uh, get through to the person so that they change their behavior and you can work together more cooperatively. On the other hand, one might make an ultimatum. People don't <coughs> respond well to ultimatums. Even animals don't. If you just say, this, if you don't do it this way, then it's finished. You paint yourself into a corner. And then once you're in the corner, if it doesn't go your way, then you have no choice but to give up your service. And that's in the mode of passion. And you won't get the result. So better to have the long-term vision that they're going going to always be discrepancies and incongruencies in dealing with groups of people and therefore find ways to communicate expertly so that you can rectify the situation or readjust yourself so that you can work cooperatively in your own niche, but don't give up doing service. Does that help? You're welcome. What other questions do you have? Hare Krishna, Chuta Bhava Prabhu. Um, I have a question about the mode of goodness. Um, I feel like prior to coming to Krishna consciousness, I'm in retrospect or in hindsight, I'm realizing that I 
I really sort of thought maybe that the point of spiritual life was to just be in the mode of goodness. And so I'm trying to distinguish what the appropriate um, role or relation is to the mode of goodness within bhakti. Because I know it's not the, the point, but it's part of our path. It supports bhakti somehow. Very much supports bhakti. In fact, in the 11th canto of Srimad Bhagavatam, when Krishna is speaking to Uddhava, he advocates in one chapter, one full chapter he dedicates to instructing Uddhava about the importance of culturing goodness in one's life, body, mind, speech, lifestyle, everything, sattva gun. It takes a lot of work, for instance, to stay clean. You almost have to constantly be in motion to stay clean and keep things orderly because they just go out of order within a few moments if you don't. And from sattva gun, as is mentioned in, in the second canto of the of first canto, second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, the sattvam yad brahmadarshanam. From the mode of goodness, one can actually see what is spirit. That means you can distinguish spirit from matter, and you can have that vision. From rajogun, rajogun means that you see the material body and the distinctions between one body and another. Sattvagun means you see the oneness of all living entities and are able to discern that actually I'm not my body and neither are others. And from a sattva gun you can also then rise to the point of shuddha sattva, or the kind of goodness that's described without any tinge of the lower modes of material nature. So it's important to culture uh, sattva gun in body, mind, and speech, and lifestyle because that's the position from which one can make further progress and understand what is what. Does that help? Yes. Um, is it, do I understand correctly, Maharaj, that it's that environment of sattvagun that is um, conducive to bhakti or helping facilitate it? Is that? Yes. Okay. Yeah, when the senses are in, in the mode of goodness, says Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, they're illuminated with knowledge. And when they're in the p- mode of passion, they're agitated for fruit of results. And there's no end to that. So the illuminated state is important for uh, being steady in devotional service. Hare Krishna, you're welcome. What other questions? Yes. question. Thank you. One of the aspects of cooperation is a willingness to to communicate in order to come to a solution. Oftentimes, my communication is based on expressing what I think is right and leaving it at that. But if I have an eagerness to come to a compromise situation in which both sides can be satisfied, and I go on communicating despite the fact it seems difficult. This is one of the most important aspects of cooperation. For instance, sometimes there are mediation, mediations, uh, meaning that, like even in ISKCON, there are situations that need to be mediated by an expert who knows how to bring two parties together and then have them discuss a seemingly intractable situation until they come to a, a, a conclusion. 
and maybe it doesn't even take one session, and maybe there is no conclusion, they agree to disagree. But the fact is they're open and willing to, to discuss. <coughs> and that willingness is very important for cooperation. And we find in mediated situations, I've been involved in several and, and been invited to mediations for various reasons, that there's a, a reluctance often right before the mediation. Both sides are complaining to the mediator that the other person's going to just ask for what they want and I won't get what I want. And there's this fear that I'm going to give up, have to give up my opinion. And so one of the finer aspects of cooperation is a willingness to, to enter into a conversation to take that risk for the sake of trying to find common ground. Because when we can find common ground, even if it's you know, seemingly patched together, uh, then we can move together. And it, it's, it's the norm, it's not the exception that, every, that people have opposite opinions these days. I've been noticing it around the world that in any given situation, any product that's produced, there's always uh, an antithesis. Someone comes up with a completely opposite opinion about uh, whether it's from milk or to computers or to <laughs> how to chant Java or whatever it is, there's always some other opinion. So when we're working together with people that have alternative opinions, there's, there's, it's an important um, factor that we're willing to communicate to understand what, where the other person's coming from, first of all. First try to understand what the other person means and why they feel such about it. And then try to express our opinion without, as I said before, giving ultimatums. With the idea of coming to a, a situation where we can cooperate together to go on with the service. So that's very helpful, especially that uh, willingness to, to communicate and be open to it should make an ultimatum that you don't make any ultimatums. Sure. Any other question? I have a question. What is the cooperation between husband and wife? What does the cooperation between husband and wife mean? What does it mean? Yes. It means vaikuntha. What, what does it look like practically? What does it look like practically? That a cooperation between husband and wife, when it looks like what it looks like ideally is that there's a common goal. If there's an agreement that, for instance, somebody, a husband and wife, devotee husband and wife, might agree that the ultimate goal is that we and our family become Krishna conscious. That that would be an important goal that a husband and wife would share. And what it would look like would be to find out how, what capacity each, each of the spouses has to perform devotional service and what their roles would be in, in enacting devotional service. I found that oftentimes husband and wife aren't going at the same speed and therefore a, a form of cooperation that is maybe, I'm just talking about in the realm of devotional service. And therefore, one of the aspects of cooperation in a, in a husband-wife situation is that, uh, for instance, the husband doesn't push the wife faster than she's able to go, or vice versa. Because what happens then is um, there's some kind of uh, added resistance. Whatever you resist persists. And there's a kind of a sense that, uh, why are you pushing me? Now I will go the opposite direction. And when you, when you don't push, when you accommodate and try to understand what the needs, interests, and concerns of the spouse is and give them the space that they need to advance in their own way, then, uh, and then try to set a good example, then oftentimes the spouse will, will think, okay, uh, let me do it. Because I've found that living entities like to use their own volition to decide whether they're going to do something or not. And in any given, like on book distribution, if you force people to give donations, they, they'll become adamant that they don't want to, oftentimes. However, if you present a reasonable explanation of 
why it might be in their benefit to do it, and then you uh, totally leave it up to them and, and leave that free space for them to decide. Oftentimes they, they become very enthusiastic about it. One of the arts of uh, dealing with living entities who have their own volition. So same thing between husband and wife. And if there's a clear idea of what the roles are between husband and wife, and um, each one does what they do best to help the other, then that can be very helpful also. Did that come in anywhere close to answering your question? Yes, thank you. It did? Oh, good. <laughs> what other questions do you have? Go ahead. Hare Krishna. So first of all, we have to understand what we mean by positive and negative. Positive and negative according to whom? So in this world, I make my plans. And I decide this is the way I want my life to look, and this is what I want uh, to get in my life. And it, it should look like this. And then the world moves against us, inevitably. True or false? True. True. So then I say that's uh, not good. In fact, if it moves really, the world moves against me really fast, then I say it's a disaster. And, and then if by some wild chance I get what I want, then I say, well, that's good. The, the world moved in my favor. But if I back up and have a higher perspective and I look and see that the world's already moving in its own direction, I'm just a tiny little player in this cosmic drama here. And if I try to align myself with Krishna's ultimate purpose, for instance, what's the world meant for? If I think the world's meant for my plans to be enacted in this world, then I'll be really disappointed. Because if you trace it out, you'll find that nobody's earthly plan has come to fruition the way they thought it would in this world from time immemorial. Material nature, if you looked at a, like a Jeopardy board or something like that, the Jeopardy, uh, the living entity, zero. Material nature, you know, five trillion to the trillionth power. Material nature wins every time. So the... The uh, Bhagavatam, and, and in Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, adjust your expectations. Because if you understand that everything that happens to me is for my purification, you'll never be disappointed. Like, just on a practical example, if I go on book distribution, I walk out the door and I think, I, I need everybody to buy a book from me, that's my goal. Is that going to happen? No. It's not going to happen. And, and, I'll, and then anyone who doesn't stop or they're not interested, I'll be disappointed. However, if I adjust my expectation and I say, my only purpose in walking out the door today is to, for self-purification. And whatever happens, uh, that's meant to purify me. Will I be disappointed? No. Because I'll, get, I'll have plenty of opportunities for purification. So the Srimad Bhagavatam says, Brahma, rather, in the Srimad Bhagavatam says, Tate nukampam susamikshamano bunjana evatma kritam vipakam, hrid bhagvapurvya viridam namaste jiveta yomukti padesa dayabhag. And that is that a person who's adjusted his or her expectations in life to understand that whatever happens to me is happening for my good and it's for my purification and appreciates it whatever that thing might be, that person is so perfectly in harmony with God's purpose for this world that he or she will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, that attitude alone will, will qualify you to go back home, back to Godhead. And the attitude is that whatever good or so-called good or bad, according to my tiny perspective, comes to me in my life, 
is actually good because it's, it's for my purification. And so devotees have a very humble attitude about their lives and their interactions with the material nature. And a devotee, when something good happens to a devotee, like say there's some windfall comes, uh, money. That's a good one to catch our attention, right? Money comes in and you go like, wow, that's really nice. Uh, nobody minds so much usually. <laughs> and, but the devotee thinks that Krishna's so kind, he gave me this gift, I didn't deserve it. And then when something like a setback comes to a devotee, the devotee thinks, I deserved a lot more, but Krishna just gave me a token, just to remind me that I'm not part of this world and to help purify me. Whereas a materialistic person is aligned on a completely different uh, attitude, with a completely different attitude, and thinks, if, if something uh, comes against his plan, he'll think that this is uh, a proof there's no God. Because otherwise, why would he be so cruel to not let me have what I want? And then when something good happens in his life, like he gets a windfall, he'll think, what is the use of God? I'm so expert. Look what I created, this windfall, because of my maneuvering in this world. And then, well, I don't need God anyway. So of the two mentalities, the, the first one I mentioned is the quintessentially devotional attitude through which one inherits the kingdom of God, and the second is the one that perpetuates my existence in the material world. That help? Yeah. Okay. Oh, you're all getting blasted by the sun. If you want to move on this side, there's plenty of room. You can fill in over here. Because that's really bright, isn't it? Unless Loka has sunglasses he can hand out to everybody. Is your future so bright, you've got to wear shades. What other questions do you have? Yes. Okay. fifth canto please so first of all yes was that the yes Yes. By your mercy and Krishna's mercy. Today, uh, I think I chanted nine rounds. Out of nine rounds, two, three rounds. It passed by so fast. I, I wasn't sure I was chanting or, or not. Like, I didn't realize that I was chanting. I, I chanted. I was not sleeping. I was <coughs> fully aware of it. But at the end, I checked the time also. Uh, like, nothing distracted me. Uh, it, it was... Uh, like uh, almost a fraction of a second I completed kind of the round. Uh, I was completely engrossed. Uh, I didn't even realize that I was engrossed. It was such a nice feeling. Thank you very Thank much you. for your mercy. Thanks for that sharing that realization because that's what we were talking about, the difference between absorption 
and being in the flow of time. As often as we were discussing at the Japa Circle, the sacred Japa Circle, SJC, we, we were talking about the two flows. One is the flow of time, when I'm aware of the fact that I'm, I'm chanting, but I'm thinking of other things also, and when will this be over, and how much time do I have left to keep chanting, and so forth. But when we reach the point of absorption, it's a different flow, and we're not thinking about when it's going to be over. We're only appreciating in that very moment the sound of the mantra, we're thinking of Krishna. And that's the point at which we make the most advancement in absorption. So the way we organize our sadhana, especially our practice of chanting, is to come to that point of absorption. And if we can obtain that even for a, a, a portion of our practice, full absorption, we'll find ourselves uh, carried along by the flow of devotional service. And it'll make, us e- make it easier to rise above the various obstacles. And when we do the other kind of practice where we're just constantly distracted or we're thinking about when will this be over, then although the benefit is always there, it will be much less. Oops, Ridan Prabhu, could you help me with this? Somehow there's like a recording going or something, and I can't get back to the, um, the point that you gave me. I think I waited too long. Thank you, sir. So I just wanted to read, regarding your first question about the position of those who are in the uh, Grihastha Ashram. Uh, Lord Rishabhadev writes in the fifth canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam, those who are interested in reviving Krishna consciousness and increasing their love of Godhead do not like to do anything that is not related to Krishna. They are not interested in mingling with people who are busy maintaining their bodies, eating, sleeping, mating, and defending. They are not attached to their homes, although they may be householders, nor are they attached to wives, children, friends, or wealth. At the same time, they are not indifferent to the execution of their duties. Such people are interested in collecting only enough money to keep the body and soul together. Radhan, thank you. That was very astute. Thank you. So, this uh, presents a balanced approach that one should always be aware that even in the household life where there are various obligations to fulfill that the ultimate purpose is Christian consciousness. However, one's not indifferent to family members. There's a fine balance. Later on in the seventh canto, Narada Muni talks about Varnashrama. And there he talks about the position of a grahasta. And even though one may be detached internally and feeling an urgency for devotional service, he warns that the grahasta should also, to some degree, be attentive to all the needs, emotional needs, psychological needs of the family members, because some people may not understand your involvement in devotional service, and if you simply withhold your emotions from them and become detached from, from them, uh, it may cause disturbance in, in your household. So there's a kind of balance and expertise that it takes to accommodate that, and at the same time be very strict with one's devotional practice. So it requires discrimination. I mean, on one side, it can become unlimited how much uh, attention family members want, especially when you have an extended family. I find that in India, people have a lot of cousins for some reason. I've never seen so many cousins. And uh, I mean, I never, (laughs) although I think I had a cousin or two, I never really, uh, you know, thought it was my duty to uh, make sure that I attended all the functions of the cousins and this and that. But if you have 52 cousins, which I've noticed that everyone in <coughs> India does have at least 52 cousins, then uh, it's, it's like it becomes onerous uh, trying to keep up with all that. So you have to, you know, you have to make a priority, as you're saying, of a, 
who are the most important players in your life and uh, attend to them appropriately so that you can go on with your service, practically speaking. I hope that helps. Yes. I'm just thinking that um, in most cases, because of some material dissatisfaction, a person turns towards Krishna consciousness, and uh, and that becomes an impetus for um, one taking up the practice. But once one enters into the spiritual realm and then is looking for deep feelings of satisfaction, then sometimes one is surprised to see that it's. Uh, you know, there's some struggle there, and it's not so easy. So, could you speak a little bit about how to cultivate this mode of spiritual satisfaction? The best way to get spiritual satisfaction is to become attached to a Vaishnava. Ramananda Roy said, when asked by Chaitanya what is the worst kind of suffering in this world? And Ramananda Roy answered that, I know of no other suffering except for separation from the Vaishnava. And when we start devotional service, it's because of association of Vaishnavas, either in this life or a past life. As we continue to make advancement in devotional service, it's because of it, association with Vaishnavas. And therefore, trying our best to become attached to the service of Vaishnavas is the means by which we can overcome obstacles in this world. Tandara charana sevi bhakta sanivas janami janami hoe e abilash. This uh, Nartam Das Thakur sings, it is life after life, let me be connected to the Vaishnavas, because uh, this is the sum and substance of advancement in devotional service. I find sometimes people come to devotional service for various means, but the strongest reason they have for sticking to it is because they like a devotee somewhere. Somehow, somehow they've developed an appreciation for, for a Vaishnava or some Vaishnavas, and they say, I like this Vaishnava. And that, that is, uh, I mean, that's why we call it Vaishnavism, because we're, we get attached to Vaishnavas. You know, and, and when, you have, when I see that devotees have that appreciation for some Vaishnava, especially an exalted Vaishnava, then Krishna gives them all kinds of help in their devotional service just because of that appreciation, that attachment to the devotees. So you'll find many places where Krishna says this, or in the Srimad Bhagavatam, for instance, This Sutta Goswami says that when you do service to the Vaishnavas, then you'll develop a taste for hearing and chanting. And then, fifth canto, again, here in the Srimad Bhagavatam, just in Rishabhadev's prayers, he says, Mahatsevam dvaram ahurva muktes tamo dvaram yoshitam sangi sangam mahantaste samachita prasanta vimanyava surida sadavo ye. He says that the, the door to liberation is thrown wide open when you do service to the great devotees. And then, Nish. Uh, Niskinchanasya Bhagavan Bajano Mukasya. Oh, that's a different verse. Um, Prahlad Maharaj says that uh, it's by getting the, the association of a, of, of a Vaishnav that purifies one. So for whatever reason one comes to devotional service, if, if we can develop appreciation for the Vaishnavs, then uh, our desires will be, not only will our desires be fulfilled, the ones that uh, we were hoping would be fulfilled by coming to devotional service, but we'll also become steady in devotional service. That's indicated in the verse, Vansha, Vansha, Kalpaturubhyascha, Kripasindabhyevacha, Patitanam, Pavanibhyo, Vaishnavibhyo, Namunamaha. Devotees are like desire trees, they fulfill the desires of everyone. So all desires are fulfilled by attachment to the devotees. Hare Krishna. Yes. Hare Krishna Guru Maharaj. Um, how does the taste of the holy name taste after you know, 40, 50 years of practice? I mean, can you share some of your personal realization? If I'm not 
Well, I have no personal taste or realization, but I can relate the, the you know, what I've heard from others. And that is that um, one develops a, a, a sense that, in a very basic way, that one cannot do without the chanting. One could not imagine going a day without doing one's full chanting. This is one, one sense of advancement in devotional service that one realizes that I'm being sustained by the power of the holy name. And just by being around the mantra, by uttering the mantra, by taking the trouble to do it, that everything else uh, in my life becomes ordered in, a, in the proper way. Or, even though it's not ordered, my intelligence becomes ordered in knowing how to deal with it. And that's palpable. And that one senses that Krishna's support is coming especially through the service one's doing through the chanting of the Holy Name. And then, of course, there's a, a sense of hearing the sound vibration and then having it remind one of or connect one to the Dom, that there's one's chanting and one's feeling as if one's there within the Dom and is feeling the mercy of you know, Krishna's presence through the Holy Name. And uh, there are many descriptions also throughout the Shastra of, for instance, um, Rupa Goswami writes about his experience in chanting where he says, when I chant, I wish that I had many millions of tongues. One is not enough. And then when I hear it, the sound vibration, I can't catch it all in these two little tiny ears. Therefore, I wish I had millions of ears. And he says, and then the, the sound vibration of the holy name, it dances within the courtyard of my heart, and it, it makes all of my other senses inert, because I become captured by that. And also, if, do you have the Sharanagati, the blue book? Songbook. The blue songbook with Sharanagati in it, Sharanagati and Gitavali. In, that, in the last verse of the Sharanagati, Bhaktivinoda Thakur uh, reveals to us his experience of chanting the Hare Krishna Mahamantra. And the, the description is astounding. Of course, we know from many of his songs the symptoms that develop for one who's chanting the holy name. And fortunate devotees will experience these symptoms from time to time after chanting for many years or even in the beginning. Krishna bolbe jabe pulaka habe jorbe anki bolitai. He says the hair, thank you. One's hair will stand on end, tears will come from to one's eyes from chanting. And here I'll give you a, a sample of what Bhaktivinoda Thakur is, is experiencing when he's chanting the holy name. He writes, What power does the name of Krishna possess? My heart constantly burns in the fire of worldly desires, just like a desert scorched by the rays of the sun. The holy name entering the core of my heart through the holes of my ears showers unparalleled nectar upon my soul. The holy name speaks from within my heart, moves onto the tip of my tongue, and constantly dances on it in the form of transcendental sound. My throat becomes choked up, my body shivers again and again, and my feet cannot remain still. Rivers of tears flow from my eyes. Perspiration completely soaks my body. All my skin thrills with rapture. My hairs stand on end, and my complexion turns pale and discolored. My mind grows faint. I begin to experience devastation and my entire body is shattered in a flood of ecstatic emotions. While causing such an ecstatic disturbance, the Holy Name showers liquid nectar on my heart and drowns me in, in the ocean of divine love of Godhead. He does not allow me to understand anything, for he has made me truly mad by having stolen away my mind and my resources. Such is the behavior of him in whom I have taken shelter. I am not capable of describing all this. The holy name of Krishna is independent and thus acts on his own sweet will. In whatever way he becomes happy, that is also my way of happiness. 
The holy name is the bud of the flower of divine love and is the very abode of astonishing mellows. Such is the power he manifests that when his holy name starts to blossom a little further, it then reveals his own divine form and qualities. Thus my heart is abducted and taken directly to Krishna. Blossoming fully, the flower of the holy name takes me to Vraja and reveals to me his own love dalliance. This name gives to me my own eternal spiritual body, keeps me right by Krishna's side, and completely destroys everything related to this mortal frame of mine. The name of Krishna is a transcendental touchstone, a mine of all devotional mellows. It is eternally liberated and the embodiment of pure rasa. When all impediments to the pure chanting of the holy name are taken away and destroyed, then my happiness will know its true awakening. So these are um, these kinds of descriptions are, are available from pure devotees who reveal their minds. And uh, it doesn't mean that just because one's chanting for a little while that one can't get free samples of these types of things also. And these kinds of free samples Krishna gives to encourage the devotees that this is what you can expect and therefore keep chanting. We should also remember that Namabasa, before we see the pure holy name and experience his presence in our life, the rays of the holy name are unlimitedly powerful and effective in helping us in our lives, in our spiritual lives. And just like there can be sunshine on a cloudy day, there's rays, ultraviolet rays that come through the clouds. I experienced once during the San Francisco Rathiatra on a very foggy, cloudy day. I worked all day to help set up the book tables and get everything in place. But I didn't wear a hat because I thought it's cloudy. And the next day I was severely burned. And then I looked it up online and said, yep, the, the ultraviolet comes right through the clouds. So even though we might f find that our vision of the holy name is clouded, we're not seeing it directly, we should know that the effect of the holy name is coming through, even as we chant in the beginning stages. And that uh, that will elevate us to the point of being able to see Krishna directly. Hare Krishna. Yes, Prabhu. Uh, Hare Krishna, Guru Maharaj, and Guru Maharaj. Uh, two things. Uh, first, a realization, and second, a question. Um, the realization is that uh, Krishna is uh, really very merciful because, uh, uh, like, when we found out that two days ago that that was it. And everybody was longing for uh, your and Guru Mahal's association, and uh, uh, and Krishna made the it came. It happened in such a way that we are here uh, listening to you and having company of uh, association of you and Guru Mahal. So that was one, and I'm sure this is this was the longing for everybody that was having for you already, although you were still here. Second question is a is a follow-up question from uh, Vishal Prabhu's uh, question. Uh, so, is it okay to discuss with your wife or your spouse uh, things that may not be happening or may, may be affecting you in, in, a, in a particular uh, association or, or with some devotee or, or somebody who is a part of the Sangha? Um, is it okay to discuss with your spouse? Because I think sometimes we need to release the pressure to the wall, and uh, and then we need pacification. So, is it okay to discuss? It depends on the the stature of your spouse. The general rule is that when you vent, you should vent upline, because your upline can handle it. And if you vent sideline, then you start developing a kind of a, a coup d'etat where 
that there's a general discontent. And if you, and if you vent downline, then uh, you discourage people who, who aren't advanced enough to handle it. So everyone has a different relationship with their spouse. Sometimes the spouse is more related, one spouse is more advanced than the other. Sometimes they're sideline, and other times they're the downline. Because sometimes a spouse, a particular spouse, isn't as advanced. And if you if you vent to such a person, they might start developing a kind of an echo and say, "Yeah, actually, you shouldn't even do devotional service. These people are, you know, so bad anyway." Because that's what their level is. If they're very advanced and you, and you vent to, to your spouse and the spouse will say yes, but anyway, they're devotees and we have to learn a way to communicate with them. Right? So you have to judge that according. It's very individual. It's not, you know, spouses are all different and the relationships are very different. So you have to judge accordingly. Because if, if you notice that every time you bring a problem to your spouse, and you t- tell your spouse, this is, you know, what's wrong with the devotees or this person, they might start thinking like, yeah, I have to protect you from them. And then, you know, start with a vengeance, start charging into the congregation and say, yeah, you know, you're a demon, you know, leave my wife or my husband alone. <laughs> so you have to be very careful about who you reveal your mind to. <laughs> so generally, you should, find, you should find qualified people to vent to. So where it can be processed properly and given back to you in a way that's helpful. Because venting, although it helps somewhat uh, to unburden you with your problems, unless the person is qualified to accept that, then they're going to, um, if they're not qualified, then they'll augment or exacerbate the situation. So that requires discrimination. And, and if you do you know, need to vent to your wife, you need to put it in the context. If, the, if the, that person is not advanced enough to handle it, you need to uh, put it in such a way that they don't misconstrue it and become discouraged or exasperate, exacerbate the situation. And uh, now we have to come to a close because I, I'm, being, I'm receiving signals from within and without, that uh, time is nigh, and uh, we have to start getting ready to um, catch our ride. We're going to uh, Delaware for the first time. I believe it's the first time, right? Yes. We're going to Delaware tonight to Bear, Delaware, B-E-A-R. So wish us luck. And then uh, the next day we're going to what's it called? Milton. Okay, named after the great blind poet, Milton. And um, I suppose we'll have a program there also. And then from there, uh, we're going to drive to Philadelphia and visit Mangalartik and her gang of uh, book distributors who we've known ever since Toronto. And they just relocated to Philadelphia about five, six years ago. And then we're going to uh, New York City on Friday night and Saturday, Sunday, we'll have all kinds of fun and games in, um, in New York City. We have a, a MSF on Saturday in, in Manhattan itself. And then we'll have a fundraiser at night at the temple to raise funds for the uh, development of the, the Renaissance, as we're calling it, of the Brooklyn Temple. And then on Sunday, what do we have? Fundraiser's on Sunday. No, it's on... It is? Oh, it's on Sunday. What's on Saturday? The MSF. Just the MSF. Then Sunday's the fundraiser. I'm glad you told me. Then we're going back to ISV on Monday, I think. And we have to leave again on Thursday for Toronto. And we'll be thinking of all of you. It was really a heartfelt meeting we had here, it's amazing what you're all doing together. I was telling Loka and Verdarva last night how impressed I am with what they've developed here. It's a <clears throat> devotional vortex right in the middle of the east, uh, eastern seaboard that accommodates people walking in and feeling at home, having uh, home-cooked prasadam, uh, 
special attention to all their needs, interests, and concerns, relationships with devotees, service uh, of the highest order. And I, uh, we're all lucky to have this to come to and to be able to uh, bask in this devotional atmosphere. And I'm so happy for all of you that you're taking advantage of it and making advancement in devotional service. Everything that you need is here. It's very powerful. So please keep up the good work and keep um, expanding your, your practices and try to be a kind friend to all living entities by, in whatever capacity you have, trying to expand the Sankirtan movement for the benefit of the world. That was Lord Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's wish. Do para upakar, do good for others so that they can come to Krishna consciousness. Does that sound reasonable? Yes. Please say yes. 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 Thank you very much. Gore Premanande. Vanchakalpadabrish. Nacharyar Marman. Nacharyar Marman. Nacharyar Marman. Nacharyar Marman. Hey, Nacharyar Marman. Nacharyar Marman. Nacharyar Marman. Nacharyar Marman.